to Prairie View Christian Church. We're glad you've chosen to worship here with us this morning. If this is the first time that you've been here, we are starting a new sermon series today, going through the book of Nehemiah, an oft-neglected book. But there's one other thing you may notice before we get started. I'll just go ahead and get this out of the way. These posters are not normally here. And if you got a chance to look at these posters before the service, uh, two of them, the two big ones, are posters that I found in the library. I had to go back to the library to get some supplies for the welcome desk, and I saw these pictures. So I started looking at them and trying to pick out people that I knew. And I knew some of them, but not a lot of them. And some of them, it really took me a second. I kind of had to squint and said, seriously, that's them? But it was, in fact, them. Uh, Another poster has the construction of this building about nine years ago, some of the progress that that went through. Then we have a poster down here of a 2008 Christmas program that has some great pictures of some of our youth dressed up like shepherds and livestock and things like that. So feel free after the service to come look at these if you didn't see them. But I will say this. One thing I noticed about these pictures, especially in the two big ones, this church has a great history of ugly sweaters. (laughs) Great, great history. And a great history of facial hair as well. There are people in these pictures that have facial hair in the pictures that don't have it now, and it's just mind-blowing for me to see them with facial hair. But I promise I'm going to come back to these pictures a little bit later in the service. But the reason I have them up here is because it's important to know your history. And if you're going to be a part of Prairie View Christian Church, or if you have interest in being a part of Prairie View Christian Church, I think it's good that you have an idea of where this all started, and where we came from, and where we've been, and where we're going in the future. Now, history is important because it determines your present, and it determines your future. The decisions that you make in the past get you to where you are right now, and the decisions that you make right now will play a huge role in where you go in the future. And history is important, and it's especially important with the book of Nehemiah. It's important that we look at the background of the book of Nehemiah before we get started, because if we don't understand the things that led up to this point, we're really not going to understand anything about the book. So, starting out, a couple quick things that you need to know before we get into Nehemiah. The big thing that happened, the big historical event that kind of led to all this stuff that we're going to read about, was in 586 B.C. In 586 B.C., the city of Jerusalem fell to the Babylonians. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came in and he ransacked the whole city. He tore down the walls, he tore down the temple... He took all of the sacred relics out of the temple, these relics that mean the world to the Israelite people. He takes them out, and he transports them to Babylon. He takes some of the people as well, the people who had skills, the people who are artisans, excuse me, the people who are craftsmen, the people who have something they can contribute. Nebuchadnezzar drags them away to Babylon. Now, the people who don't have skills, the people who don't have things they can really contribute, they end up staying back in Jerusalem. And they don't have the resources to really do much of anything. They don't have the resources to rebuild. They don't have the skills to re-put Jerusalem back on the pedestal that it belongs on in their minds. And so Jerusalem just kind of sits there in 586 B.C. Now, Babylon's goal, when they exiled the Israelites to Babylon, their goal was to completely wipe these people off the map. Get rid of their art, get rid of their culture, change their names, change their religious practices. Make it as if these people never even existed and truly make them full-fledged 
Babylonians. And that continues for about 47 years. But then in 539 B.C., Babylon falls. Babylon falls to Persia. And Persia is led by a guy named Cyrus. And Isaiah specifically says in chapter 45 of his prophecy that Cyrus, whether he realizes it or not, is a tool in God's hand. That God is using Cyrus to accomplish his story with Israel, to continue his story with Israel. So Cyrus comes in. Cyrus and Persia, they're now in control. And Cyrus goes about things in a very different way than Nebuchadnezzar did or any of the other Babylonian kings. Cyrus tells the exiled people, go home, go back to your hometowns, discover your heritage, start practicing your traditions again, get back into your religious practices. And so he gives them some freedom. He shows some humanity to these people. And his logic behind that is probably that, you know, if you want to expand your empire, if you want to grow your kingdom, it's a good idea to not let your subjects get mad at you. Because if your subjects are mad at you, they're going to rebel. They're going to rise up. And so within some certain parameter, Cyrus says, you know what, let's keep these people happy. That way they'll have no reason to dislike us. And they'll just submit to us. They won't think anything of it. So the people return. And in 519 BC, after Darius has taken over from Cyrus, Darius is very much like Cyrus. Nothing really changes there. In 516, roughly, The temple in Jerusalem is rebuilt. After 70 years of not having a temple, the temple is finally constructed again. And you can read about this in the book of Ezra. And the reason this is so significant, the reason why the construction of the temple was such a big deal, was because Leviticus 16 and 17 talks about the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement was this tradition where one of the priests would go into the Holy of Holies in the temple. Only he could go in. And he would make this sacrifice on behalf of all of the people of Israel. And this sacrifice, the idea was that this would atone for the sins of the people for the entire year. And he did it every year. But the problem is that for 70 years, you haven't had a temple. You haven't had a holy of holies. So the sacrifice hasn't been made. And so the people celebrate When the temple is rebuilt and the sacrifice can be made and 70 years worth of sins can be forgiven in their minds. Now, it's all well and good, but there's one problem. The temple is rebuilt, but the walls aren't. The temple looks great, but it's defenseless. The city around it still is pretty much in ruins, subject to any kind of enemy, subject to any kind of opposition without any defense whatsoever. And that brings us to where we are today in Nehemiah chapter 1. We fast forward to about 445 B.C., about 140 years after the original fall of Jerusalem and 70 years after the construction of the new temple. So before we get into Nehemiah chapter 1, this thing that we've all been leading up to, up to now, let's pray together before we jump in to God's Word. Father God, thank you for this day. Thank you for your Word Thank you for the book of Nehemiah. Thank you for the history that that we are learning. But this isn't just history in terms of facts. This really is the story of your people. And we are now blessed to be able to say that we're a part of your people through the blood that Jesus shed for us. And so, God, I pray that as we read this story, we'll realize that the story really is not all that far off from ours. I pray that we'll see ourselves in the story. I pray that we'll learn from Nehemiah. 
I pray that we will look to you at all times in moments of success and moments of failure and moments of peace and moments of chaos. I pray that we will look to you. We love you. We thank you for Jesus. We give you all the glory today. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if you don't have a Bible with you, feel free to use one of the Bibles in the chair underneath you or maybe the chair in front of you. We'll also have verses up on the screen if you'd like to use one of those. If you don't own a Bible, feel free to take one with you. We have a few sitting on the welcome desk. We want you to have a copy of that. But Nehemiah chapter 1, if you don't know where Nehemiah is, turn to Psalms about halfway in your Bible roughly, and then turn back about 100 pages and you should be in the vicinity. So Nehemiah chapter 1 verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev. Remember that month, the month of Chislev. In the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. Now this is a big deal to Nehemiah. It's a big deal to his brother, I'm sure. It's probably a big deal to the people who are with his brother, because Jerusalem is God's city. This is the city that God gave the Israelite people, his covenant people that he chose by his grace. And when the Israelites have the city of Jerusalem, it's an indicator that God is blessing them, that God is watching over them, that God is providing for them. And as we read at the end of First Chronicles, or Second Chronicles, rather, chapter 36, if you want to turn over there, feel free to, but you don't have to. In that passage, we read that Jerusalem is being led by a guy named Josiah. But when Josiah dies, all of a sudden, the people are without a king. Josiah had made all these reforms. He had gotten rid of corruption. He had encouraged the people to get back in relationship with God, to maintain the covenant that God made with them that they had kind of abandoned. But then Josiah dies. The people fall away. The people abandon God. And Jerusalem is captured. Jerusalem is God's city. It's the city that should be a shining beacon for the Israelite people. And yet it looks terrible. It looks horrible. The temple's there, that's great, but the rest of the city doesn't look too good. Flip over to Psalm 87, verses 1 through 3, the psalm that one of our worship songs was just recently inspired by. Psalm 87, 1 through 3, On the holy mount stands the city he founded. The Lord loves the gates of Zion. Zion is another name for Jerusalem, whenever you come across that in Scripture. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. Glorious things of you are spoken, O city of God. Well, glorious things are not really being spoken of Jerusalem right now for Nehemiah, because it's definitely seen better days. So what's his response going to be? Look at Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 4. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, 
confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. So Nehemiah responds about the way you would expect he would. He is heartbroken by this news. He can't believe that the city of God, the city God gave them, the city that David reigned in, the city that Solomon reigned in, all of a sudden it looks horrible. It's a disgrace. It's shameful. He fasts. He prays. And there's a few things I want to notice about this prayer, and we saw two of them really quickly in verses 5 and 6 especially, verse 7 as well. The first thing that Nehemiah does in his prayer is that he praises God. Even though things look horrible, even though the outlook is bleak, Nehemiah says, God, you are great. God, you are awesome. And you keep your covenant and your steadfast love even when we don't. Look at what else he says. He immediately repents of sin. He doesn't just say, oh, God, man, those Israelite people back there 140 years ago, they really messed up. I wish they would have repented. I wish they would have obeyed you. Then maybe this whole thing wouldn't have happened. No. Nehemiah says, God, I'm sorry for the sins that I have committed. We disobeyed you. My family disobeyed you. All of us disobeyed you. And look what's happened. Forgive us, God. Nehemiah is extremely humble, extremely repentant in this prayer. He refuses to blame other people. He says that this is on us. We deserve this. You were right in doing this. Another part we pick up in verse 8. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me... And keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven that I have chosen. From there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen, to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. Nehemiah hits another point here in this prayer. At first he praises God. The second thing he does is he repents. And then the third thing that he does is he says that, you know what, God, you're faithful. The passage that he seems to be citing, the passage that maybe gave him some inspiration for this, is Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 and 6. In that passage, we read God's words. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. God says, Israelites, I am choosing you, not because you've done anything, not because you've earned it, but I'm choosing you to be my people strictly because I just want to show you grace. I just want to be good to you. So here's the covenant. Here's my end of the deal. Here's your end of the deal. The Israelites don't keep their end of the deal. Throughout their history, there are the ups and downs. One minute they obey God, the next minute they abandon God. And then something bad happens, and they repent, and they return to God again. And then something else happens, and they abandon God again, and they return to God again. It's this constant toing and going. It's really frustrating, I'm sure, if you're in God's shoes. But God stays faithful. 
God remains the God of these people even when they abandon him. When we fail, God keeps his end of the deal. When we are unfaithful, God is faithful. And Nehemiah praises him for that. Look at verse 11, closing out this prayer. The last thing I want to look at. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. The final thing that Nehemiah prays for is success. He says, grant me mercy in the sight of this man. Who's the man that he's talking about? Well, it's the king that he is serving as cupbearer. Throughout the entire book of Nehemiah and throughout this prayer, one thing you're going to pick up on, one thing you're going to notice is that at no point in this big undertaking that we're about to read about, that Nehemiah proposes, at no point does he pretend that he can handle it on his own. At no point does he fool himself into thinking that he has the skills necessary, that he has the expertise necessary. Throughout the entire process, he does not ashamed by the fact that he's relying on God to accomplish this thing that he wants to do. And he's the cupbearer to the king, the man he has to ask permission to do this thing. Now, the cupbearer, you've probably seen it in movies or in TV shows, the cupbearer was the guy who would test the king's wine before the king drank it to make sure it wasn't poisonous. Sounds like a pretty bad gig, I would think, because, I mean, it's really, you fail once, then you're out of a job and out of life. But Nehemiah decides that he's going to be the cupbearer to the king. He's appointed to this position, and it's actually a very, very respected position, because Nehemiah is the one guy between the king and assassination. He's basically the last line of defense. And so Nehemiah has to prove himself trustworthy. He has to prove himself credible, that he's not going to somehow find a way to sabotage the wine, that somehow he's not going to find a way to sabotage the king's life. And as a result of being the cupbearer, Nehemiah is with the king every single meal. That means that Nehemiah gets to know the king pretty well. He got a hearing with the king. He gets some influence with the king. The king maybe starts to appreciate him a little bit. And so Nehemiah has built up this credibility for all this time. And then we turn over to chapter 2 and what Nehemiah is going to ask of the king. Chapter 2, verse 1. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. Remember earlier I said, remember the month of Chislev. Well, now we're in the month of Nisan. It's estimated that the month of Nisan would have been about four months after the month of Chislev. The thought is that maybe the initial news of Jerusalem's state of affairs came to Nehemiah in November or December. And then maybe he approaches the king, which we're reading about right now, in March or April. So what's he doing for four months? Well, we're going to see that he's planning. We can assume that he's probably continuing to fast. He's probably continuing to pray. He's not going into this flippantly. He knows that what he's about to ask is a pretty big deal. So we pick up in verse 1. When wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Pretty standard procedure. But here's where things aren't standard. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? 
This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. Why would Nehemiah be so scared? Well, number one, it was probably considered bad servant etiquette to let the king see your feelings. You're supposed to be unnoticeable. You're supposed to be a robot. You're not supposed to let your personal issues affect the way you serve the king or your attitude in serving the king. And it's not very polite if you do that. It's not very becoming of a servant. But the king notices that something's wrong with Nehemiah. He seems a little bit different than usual. He seems down. And he doesn't look physically sick. He seems like he's doing okay physically. So what are you sad about? The second reason that Nehemiah may have been scared is that what he's about to ask, it's a bold request. A request that he's been bathing in prayer for four months. That he's been thinking about and planning about for four months. And this is the moment that it's all come up to as he stands before the king. Then we see Nehemiah's response. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. Again, Nehemiah, praying to God, dependent upon God all throughout this process. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. The request works. Nehemiah, in verses 7 and 8, he gets all the proper paperwork. He gets all the proper authorization. He gets all the proper permissions to make sure that he can go ahead with this project. He makes sure that the right supplies are being sent to Jerusalem so that he'll have all the things that he needs to rebuild these walls. The request worked. And it worked because Nehemiah was constantly depending upon God. Because look at the end of verse 8. The good hand of my God was upon me. Again, Nehemiah refuses to take the credit. He gives it all to God. We pick up in verses 9 through 16. I'm going to summarize those a little bit. Nehemiah rides into town. He's got an entire bodyguard with him. And people are kind of suspicious. People are wondering what this guy's doing. But Nehemiah is going to play it pretty close to the vest. He's not giving away what he's coming to Jerusalem for. He's not just going around and spouting out his plans, letting, waiting to see what everyone thinks about them. This includes his enemies. There are several enemies that we're going to talk about just in a few minutes. But there are also friends that Nehemiah keeps quiet to. And so one night, Nehemiah, keeping the plans to himself, rides around the city in the middle of the dark. He expects the walls. He looks around to see how they look. He sees what the weak spots are. He sees where the rubble is. He tries to wrap his mind around just what kind of project this is going to be. And then, and only then, does he tell the people what his plans are. Look at verse 17. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in. How Jerusalem lies in ruins with the gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. Another time, 
Nehemiah relies on God. He says, the hand of God is upon me. I didn't just come up with this idea. I didn't just happen to have this original thought. No, God gave this to me. This is God's project, not my project. They said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. Let us rise up and build. Let us rise up and build. I love the way they word that. Verse 19, But when Sanballat the Oronite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, What is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? These three guys, Sanbala and Tobiah and Geshem, they all basically live in different areas surrounding Jerusalem. And they've never really had good relationships with Jerusalem. And so they're not crazy about the idea of Jerusalem regaining its defenses and being built back up again. They've probably enjoyed kicking Jerusalem while it's down because it was such a power for so long. And they get to laugh at it and point at it and mock it. But Nehemiah wants to stop that. But how does Nehemiah respond to their opposition, to their veiled threats of accusing him of rebellion? Verse 20, I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper, and we his servants will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. Nehemiah refuses to let their opposition scare him. And the reason why he is not scared, the reason why he doesn't let these guys intimidate him, is because he knows that the hand of God is upon him. That this isn't his little hobby. This isn't his idea. This is God's idea. And God is not going to let this fail. That God knows what he's doing. And if God is in this thing, then Sanbala and Tobiah and Geshem, they can mock all they want. They can laugh all they want. They can accuse us of rebellion. But guess what? It's not going to work. Because God is in this thing. And we know that God is in this thing. And the people look at him and say, you know what? Let's do this. Let's rise up and build. Let's strengthen our hands. And so the construction begins. Now that's where we're going to stop today with the book of Nehemiah. We're going to pick up in chapter 3 next week. But I want you to look at these posters again. I brought up these posters earlier in the service. If you look at these posters, you see a lot of history, like we talked about. And you see a foundation here. You see a foundation for Prairie View. Because as I look at these pictures of people that some of them I know, most of them I don't know, some of them have been here for a long time, some of them left a long time ago, some of them left because they got a new job or because they moved or because they went off to school. But I look at these pictures and I see a lot of beautiful things here because I see kids that I know who are now in their teens or 20s or 30s even. I see these pictures of these kids when they were young. And I realized that, you know what, these kids spent their whole lives almost in this church. And they're off in other places. And they're serving God. They're off in Columbus. They're off in Cincinnati. They're off in West Lafayette. They're off in other places too. And they're doing amazing things for the kingdom. And God is using them to build his kingdom. I look at these faces, I look at these pictures, and I say, you know what, this church has a great, great, great history. And God is building something at this church. He's built something in the past, and he's going to continue building something here in the future. 
And so the question is, are you at a point where you can say, you know what, let us rise up and build. That I believe that God is doing something here. I believe that God is building something here in the corner of Allisonville and 141st, and I want to be a part of that. It's exciting. It's new. And just like any church, we've seen our good days, we've seen our bad days. We've had ups, we've had downs, just like Jerusalem. But God is building something here. There's a foundation to work with because God has clearly worked here before. And he's working here now. And he's going to continue working here in the future. But our foundation, our history, is not just these faces. We have an even bigger foundation than that. A better foundation than that. A foundation that we can build our walls on and they will not be torn down. And that foundation is Jesus himself. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 5 through 9. Paul, addressing divisions in the church, says, What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. So what is our work? What is it that we strengthen our hands here to do at Prairie View? We plant and we water. We tell people about Christ. We love and serve until people ask why. We consistently preach the gospel everywhere we go, not just with our words, but with our actions. We're good stewards of what God has blessed us with to make the most of it as the kingdom is being built here. That's how we build. We're a part of it, but ultimately God does the heavy lifting. That's the beautiful part of it. And then look at verse 11 of 1 Corinthians 3. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. That's the core foundation. If nothing else, we have that. If we don't have a history of faces who have come in the door and lives have been changed, if we don't have a huge building, if we don't have an incredibly large attendance number, okay, but we have Christ. And if we build on that, that's really all that matters. If we plant and if we water and let God give the growth, then amazing things are going to happen here. We preach Christ crucified. We preach that Christ died on the cross for you and for me, that his body was broken, his blood was shed, that we might come back into relationship with God, that we could be reconciled to God, and we are saved by grace through faith. Faith that Christ's sacrifice paid everything. That that day of atonement thing in the temple that didn't happen for 70 years, guess what? The sacrifice that matters The sacrifice that outweighs any Day of Atonement sacrifice, that's been paid. And it only had to be paid once, and it's already happened for you and for me. And so we preach that faithfully. We build on that. We use that as our foundation. That's what we anchor our walls in. That's what we're building here. And God is inviting you to be a part of it. And I hope you will be. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this day. Thank you for 
all that you've blessed us with. Thank you for the inspiration that Nehemiah gives us, the leadership that he shows, the humility that just shines from everything he does, God. I pray that you will continue building here at Prairie View. I pray that we'll be grateful for the privilege that we have to be a part of what you're doing here as we plant and as we water. And God, I pray that we will be dependent upon you, not dependent upon our skills, our talents, our abilities, our resources, God. I pray that we'll be dependent on you alone to make the growth happen. That you alone can truly build this church. I pray that we will always keep Jesus as our foundation. All the other things can be helpful. Maybe there's other things that are good. But what really matters is you. Keeping your son as the focus. Help us to do that. Thank you for this day. Thank you for the coming weeks as we look at Nehemiah. And thank you that we get to be a part of what you're building here. We love you. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. If you are not a follower of Christ, maybe you've built walls that you just don't seem to really want to tear down between yourself and God. I pray that you'll talk to one of our elders. They'll be standing at the side of the room. Maybe as you look at your life, you look at your finances, you look at your family, you look at your career, you look at something around you, and everything just lies in ruins. And I pray that through Christ, you will trust that God can rebuild you. That if you will place your foundation in him, that it will be worth it. Talk to one of our elders. They'll be happy to pray with you. They'll be happy to answer any questions you have about the church. We hope you'll take advantage of that.